0: love that worship. How about you? Pretty great. Thank you, worship team. How about if you have a Bible with you, you go to Matthew, book of Matthew. We're going to pick up in the parables where we left off last week, and we'll be in Matthew 24 this morning. Some of you right away know that that's talking about the second coming. And so if you were looking for happy Sunday, that was last week. Is, uh, it gets pretty intense this morning with what Jesus is describing about last days things, and he uses a parable to illustrate what to look for, what to expect, the timing of things in the last days. You may not have known you were walking into that this morning, uh, but it's, you know, we're taking one parable right after another, and this one's pretty straightforward. Um, Jesus was in the temple, and now in this setting, he's not in the temple. I want to pray with you, though, for a very specific reason this morning. Um, This could come across fairly educational, um, like a classroom setting in the type of material we're looking at this morning. And, And I want to pray that it's more than that with you, that we really would see God revealed through the power of the Holy Spirit, that he would reveal himself, his reasons for the actions that he carries out, that he would reveal things to you about yourself and who you are before God. And so that's a very specific prayer request that I, I would like to utter with you this morning before we step into it. And also, I'm going to be asking you to pray for the Rogers family. Mike Rogers passed away a week ago today. Some of you know Mike. And Mike and Beth were watching the 9 o'clock service a week ago today, and, and then Mike went to see his brother Paul after the service and then passed away at Paul's house. And so the funeral today, he's a great guy, dearly loved by this church, and um, active in men's ministry, and Beth active in women's ministry. And so Gary's going to lead the funeral today at 3 o'clock. Lori and I will be there, and, and Gary's going to lead the church through that funeral. So if you're available, whether you're at home virtually or you're here in person, and you can come back for that at 3. You're welcome to be here. We'd love to see you. Lori and I were walking through a, a cemetery probably a month ago or so. Um, we don't, as a habit, walk through cemeteries, but we were walking our dogs, and we just decided to walk through the cemetery. I came across a gravestone. Um, that this guy who had died, I don't know, 50 years ago, he had put an epitaph on his tombstone. And, and I, I chuckled when I read it because it said, engraved in stone, if you hear a tump, trumpet blast, stand back. Right? think about that for a minute. You hear the trumpet, he's going up, so you better get out of the way. So uh, I just thought about that when I was thinking about Mike this week and and the joyous reunion. He's a believer in Jesus Christ. He's with his Lord and Savior today in this moment. But we grieve because of the loss of Mike. But uh, with the thought in mind that we're stepping into the things about end times and and the second coming and this parable, how about if we pray right now both for the Rogers family and for our time together? Lord God, I thank you for the opportunity we have to study to review your word together and walk through this and how you will teach us. We thank you for the gift of technology that many can do this from home virtually and others can be here and all of us join together in the bond of love. We, We worship you, we praise you, and we thank you for the opportunity to learn more about you. So we pray, Father, that while this can sound educational, we pray most of all that we would see who we are before you and who you are that you would reveal truth, that you would reveal justice, that you would reveal your activities. Help us to understand what we're about to process. We also pray for the Rogers family. We pray especially for Beth and the boys and the loss of Mike, that you would comfort them, you surround them with your care and comfort, and you would lead through Gary this afternoon. All this time together right now, Father, we put before you and ask that you would bless it and that you would anoint it and that you would use it for the expansion of your kingdom. We pray for these things in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. It's the final week of Jesus' life in this particular setting. He gets crucified on Friday. It appears to be Tuesday or Wednesday, probably Wednesday. And he's been teaching in the temple complex. It had a crowd that's listening very intently to him, and he finishes up his last parable that we saw last week in the temple complex, and now when you come into Matthew 24, he's making his way out of the temple. For the last three weeks, you've been seeing him making comments about judgments and coming judgments, and today there's a shift. He's not talking about judgments. He begins talking about the second coming. And you're going to see week after week after week, right up to the end of the parable series that we're in together, for the next four weeks, each one is going to talk about the second coming and what we should expect in last day's things. But during the time that he's been talking about judgments, one of the judgments that he spoke of was the judgment against Israel as a nation for having rejected him. And we saw that hinted at last week when he talked about the murderers being dealt with and that the, fire, the city would be set on fire and destroyed. And then we found out last week that in 70 AD, indeed, Rome did come against Israel and brought God's judgment against them and scattered them as a nation. Well, he refers to that again this morning in Matthew 24. In verse 1, he says, not one stone is going to be left on top of another in the temple. That's one of the judgments. But the second judgment, that one is much more massive in scope. It's not just about a nation. It's a global event. It's God dealing with the population of the entire planet, everything within the universe. And these first two verses set up the conversation that you're going to see this morning in the parable. So Matthew 24, 1 and Matthew 24, 2 and 3 is just a setup to the parable. Let's look at verse 1 first. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him, verse 2, and he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Uh, very emphatically, he's got his followers around him, and they've just pointed out the temple complex. He's been inside the temple complex, which has been built with massive stones over decades and decades and decades. It's a huge construction project. And he's telling them that the stones are going to be ripped down and not one stone will be on top of the other. It's a big-picture way of saying, get your eyes off the temporal things. Get your eyes off the temporary things. They're not here for long. And in that case, he was talking about the judgment of Israel specifically. And you talk about rocking their world because everything they had in their world was put in the emphasis of how grand and how great the temple was and how permanent it was. Uh, From that set of verses, 1 and 2, Jesus turns and walks out of Jerusalem and he begins climbing up what we call the Mount of Olives. He's going to begin what's known as the Olivet Discourse. And when he gets up on the mountain, he takes a moment to sit down and begins talking to the disciples, and they've just spent the day in the temple complex, and they heard his final words in the end of chapter 23. In chapter 23, verse 39, he closed his parables by saying, "'Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.'" Boom, end, done. And he turns and leaves and now we find him transitioning, and he pivots, and he begins talking about his return and coming and great power and glory, and we find that in verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And they have to ask, because it's the question on everybody's mind See, when they heard him say that they were were not going to see the stones piled up for the temple anymore, but rather the stones would be taken down, not one stone on top of another, they thought that must be associated with the second coming. They they certainly were thinking that has to do with the end of the world, because it would be the end of their world. They didn't know there was two different judgments that were being discussed here. So they have to ask that question. It's on everybody's mind, it's on our mind today. It was asked 2,000 years ago, it's being asked today. Is this it? Has the stage been set? Could Jesus come back tomorrow? Well, Jesus answers their questions from verse 4 all the way through the end of the chapter and then into chapter 25. We won't get into all that this morning. We'll get into that in the weeks coming ahead. Here's the interesting thing that he does he addresses their second question first. What was the second question? What are the signs? What's the indication that you're coming back? And then their first question, he answers last, which is, when? When is this gonna happen? And he does it in those orders in this parable that you're looking at. So from chapter 24 through chapter 25, he expounds on the final days of planet Earth, and there are things that are listed here that are far beyond anything that Hollywood has yet captured on film. Let me give you an example of that, beginning in verse 29. Matthew twenty-four, twenty-nine. And immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will lament, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory." And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. I'm sure the disciples are standing there with their mouth wide open, like, what? What is this that you're describing? He's just described the exceeding trouble, such as the earth has never known. And he says, that's just the beginning. That's going to precede the end of all things. And he begins speaking of galactic wonders, things that will happen in space, things that will happen here on this particular planet. And it's reminiscent of the Old Testament. It's it's as though he's channeling Joel or channeling Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophets. He doesn't actually quote them, but he begins speaking of the things that they spoke of. And the most striking feature of what he's just described is that neither the sun nor the moon will give any light whatsoever. The entire planet will lay in utter darkness. Even the stars will fall from heaven, and that the stars fall mean that they won't give any more light than the sun and the moon. At that point, there's just blackness, no natural source of light on earth. As though God is uncreating his creation. Now, just pause for a moment. Jesus already knows that there's a lot of speculation about when these things will happen. He already knows that there'll be a lot of speculation about the last day's things. So in light of that speculation, he gives us a reality check by saying something like this. This is Mark paraphrasing it. Mark, there's a whole lot of people that don't know what they're talking about. We're surrounded by them in our planet today, individuals thinking, well, this means this and this means that, and people try and put dates on it all the time, and so Jesus had to say this in verse 4, Matthew 24, 4, Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you because there will be those who will seek to mislead you. So he goes on to tell us the information that we need to know about the end times and it's up to us as the church, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's up to you to study these things, study the times that we live in. He says, always be on the alert. You're going to see that a lot in the next couple of weeks. But he specifically indicates there's some things that clearly have to happen first before the end can come. And then he goes on to warn when it will happen. And he says, when it happens, it's going to happen quick. maybe when you've read the Bible before, you've seen it say, Jesus said, behold, I'm coming soon. Well, soon is a transliteration of the word quick, meaning when it happens, it's going to happen very quickly. It'll be a rapid succession of events. Not meaning that when he left planet Earth in 33 AD, that he was coming back in 34 AD, but rather that when it happens, it will happen very, very quickly, very rapidly and catch people by great surprise. So, we have some of the warnings that Jesus gave us along those lines. Verse 27, Matthew 24, 27, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Well, how fast does the lightning travel across in a storm? As fast as you can blink, as fast as you can snap your fingers. It's it's there, and then it's gone. That's how quickly he's talking about. Or he gives this illustration. Verse 37, For as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man." Why use that? Well, there's some things that were characteristic about Noah. In the days of Noah, people were moving to and fro. The Bible says they were doing whatever they wanted to, whatever was seen fit in their own eyes. But the Bible says that they were carrying on business. They were carrying on transactions, farming. They were carrying on buying goods, and then suddenly the rain came, and no one expected, and Noah's in the ark. And Noah's family's in the ark, and then the flood came and no one was prepared. That's why he's using these indica- indications. I would tell you that as I study these things, and I spend a lot of time studying them, I've come to this conclusion. Every generation thinks that their generation must be the last generation. We're all convinced of it. Ten years ago, I did a study in the book of Revelation. And We spent quite a bit of time, and as a matter of fact, you can download that if you're interested in that study. It it took a bit of time to work through, and you can get the study guides from New Hope's office. But here's what I realized. Ten years ago, people were thinking, well, that day is the day because of events going on in the world. My mother told me that in World War II, at the height of World War II in the 1940s, most people on this planet who were believers in Jesus were convinced that Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist he fit the description. The, the criteria was there. A European, an individual who's numbering people by force in mass executions. So they thought, well, he must be the Antichrist. And every generation thinks that their generation is the last one. And every generation thinks it can't possibly get worse than this. But then it does. And we have a reality check. So know this when you're working through these parables over the next four weeks. When Jesus delivers these parables, he delivers them in two forms. One set of parables you've seen so far were a mystery to some individuals listening. Some individuals couldn't make any sense of it. And so the disciples said to Jesus, why are you teaching them in parables? It's like a riddle, they can't get it. Well, there were some individuals Jesus intended for them to not get it so they would work hard at understanding it. And that was generally the mass of non-believers. But when he's talking to his own followers, when he's talking to believers and he delivers a parable, it was to make an illustration to make truth very, very clear because he wanted them to know. Keep that mindset in regards to this parable that you're about to look at. These are things that Jesus wanted you to know. It's an illustration of truth to make truth clear. So what you're about to see is part of a larger section known as the Olivet Discourse. I'm not going to start with the parable. I'm going to start one verse before the parable, verse 31. He says it this way, Matthew 24, 31, And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And Jesus just made this hugely declarative statement And if you're his followers and you're sitting on the Mount of Olives with him and listening to that, after you've heard about the destruction of the planet, now you hear about the trumpet of God, and you have to have your mouth wide open. You're thinking, okay, now what's next? Is he going to tell us when it happens? And then comes verse 32, and everything changes emotionally. It's the parable. Verse 32, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Can you imagine hearing everything that you've just heard for 31 verses about the destruction of the planet? And then he begins talking about a fig tree? What? It feels like this massive disconnect. Then you try to assemble it in your mind. Why is he talking about horticulture all of a sudden? Well, know this, it's not meant to be complicated. It is not complicated. Jesus merely starts out this way by saying, let the fig tree be your teacher. So he's telling this parable from the perspective of the fig tree tree, to to shed some light about the second coming. And it's a very, very simple analogy that he's giving here. Even though we tend to make it very complex. Uh, Let me give you an example of complex. One very popular view in reading this thing over the years in the past is individuals read it and say, oh, I know what that is. That's talking about the arrival of Israel as a nation in 1948. They went out of existence in 70 AD and the budding of the fig tree, that's them coming back on the scene in 1948 as a nation and then reexisting on this planet. And it's, it's playing into prophecy. However, when you step back and look at what he's saying here, that view would be totally obscure to the disciples. See, he's giving a parable to make something clear. And that view wouldn't make things clear because the disciples are any other believer living before the 20th century, before 1948. They wouldn't have a clue of what that was. The disciples, especially in the first century, had no idea that their nation was gonna go out of existence. They didn't know about 70 A.D. coming. This is 33 A.D. They certainly wouldn't know that the nation would come back into existence, so that can't be what he's talking about. Well, this parable is much simpler than that. In the first century, Israel was covered with fig trees, much like we have cherry trees around our state today. Figs were grown commercially. They were grown in people's yards. People could harvest them out their front window if they wanted to. There's lots and lots of fig trees. A really tasty fruit, we've figured out a way to make a cookie out of that fig, and we call them fig newtons today. You probably would like it. In in their world, figs were a fruit that you just grabbed from the tree, you waited for it to dry, and they used it in all kinds of forms of cooking, and much like a date, Well, in our world, we can see the analogy because we have cherry trees here. Traverse City's covered with them. They're all over the place. Or on the West Coast, we have blueberry bushes. There's an abundance of them. We understand what it is to have a familiar fruit tree. Well, because this particular fig tree is so common, it was familiar to use it as an illustration. So just bear with me on those three words that he used. Learn the parable. You see that word learn there. You might even want to circle that in your Bible this morning. It's the one Greek word that's in your notes today. It's the word manthano, and it means what you think it means. It means to learn in any way. If you've been at New Hope for any period of time, maybe several years, you've heard me use the word mathetes. Manthano and mathetes are kissing cousins. They're together. A mathetes is you. You're a student. You're a learner. I'm a student. I'm a learner. Manthano is that process of learning. We see Paul use that same word, that Greek word manthano, in Philippians 4.11. You see this up on the screen. Paul says, I have learned, I have manthano, to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now, is Paul saying there, I've learned intellectually how to be content? No, there's much more going on there. Montano or Mate Taste as a student, but Montano, the process of learning, is much more than just head knowledge. It's much more than just intellectual information. So Jesus in this parable is not just talking about pay attention intellectually. This is talking about hearing the truth, accepting the truth, and a determination in your own personal lives to live consistently with what this truth is explaining. So as a result of hearing, Jesus wants his followers to monthano. He wants you to not only learn about the end times and these last days, he wants you to monthano what he's teaching, not only to understand it, but allow its truth to permeate your life and affect your life in such a way that it affects the way that you live and the decisions that you make. Now, as to this parable, he's reminding his disciples the simple fact When the branch is budding its leaves, you know that summer is near. We would say when the flowers appear on the blueberry bushes over in Holland, we know the blueberries can't be far away. That means summer is near. If we put it in a a mid-Michigan translation, we would say when the maple buckets appear on the side of the maple trees and they begin collecting the sap, we know that winter's behind us and spring is coming. That means summer can't be far away, or when the robins arrive and they start pulling the worms out of the soil. See, in their world in the first century, just like in our world, when the sap began flowing into the branches, making them very tender, the new leaves would appear, and it means summer is near. Well, in this present parable, Jesus is simply illustrating when the signs of the last days are visible, the time of his return is very, very near. Verse 33. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. We just need to keep this in context. And when you do that, you'll find the application is completely unmistakable. Let's just go to the phrase, all these things, just those three words. What's all these things referring to? Well, directly to what he's been talking about. And many of you are going to want to read chapter 24 and chapter 25 later today. Hopefully you're not doing that right now. Okay? Just stay with me on this. I know it's very tempting to. Here's what chapter 24 is talking about in a nutshell. All these things is referring to the birth pangs, verses 4 through 14. It's talking about the abomination of desolation, verse 15. It's talking about the need to flee because of the approaching disasters. It's talking about the catastrophic dismantling of the universe in verse 29. All these things, when all these things appear, those things it says, he is near. Now, your translation of the Bible might say, it is near, I-T. If you have that, it's being a more accurate translation. Modern day translators put the word he in there or it because they're interchangeable. Don't be confused by that. When it's talking about he or it's talking about it, it's simply a Greek word that's a transliteration that actually just means the kingdom. That kingdom is near. So when you see those things, it is near. James captures it this way, James 5, 9. Behold, the judge is standing at the door because the ultimate event, say amen if you agree with us, the ultimate event of the last days is the Lord Jesus' personal return. His personal coming. Jesus is coming again. This is what he's talking about. And when those signs occur, the king will be right at the door, ready to enter our world again, just like he did in the first century, thus the term second coming, verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, that's a really confusing statement. Many people look at that and say, wait, wait, I can't make sense of that. He's talking to the disciples there. They're on the Olivet Mountain, the Mount of Olives. What what could he possibly be referring to this generation? And for millennia, people have incorrectly attempted to use verse 32 through verse 34 as statements for placing a date as though they can come up with a specific time. For instance, some have incorrectly looked at this particular statement by Jesus and have determined that that's talking about the destruction then in A.D. 70 of Jerusalem. He's got the disciples in front of Him. He says, this generation, this generation won't pass away, a generation is 40 years. He said that in 33 A.D. The Romans came in A.D. 70, that must be what He's talking about. But I would ask you to pause and back up a little bit. That event in Matthew 24 that He's describing is much too cataclysmic to represent the devastation in A.D. 70. As bad as A.D. 70 was, and it was horrible, it did not involve the things you're going to see pop up on the screen. It did not involve famines and earthquakes. It did not involve believers being hated by all nations. It did not involve false Christ and false prophets. There was no preaching the gospel to the whole planet. The abomination of desolation did not occur nor was the sun turned dark or the moon ceasing to shine. Nor did the stars drop out of the sky. And most obvious, Jesus didn't come back. So that can't be what it's talking about here. Well, verse 34 says, this generation. And this generation can't refer to the disciples' generation. Know this, Jesus is not stating a specific time in, in that Case of the second coming, a a specific date. Rather, here's what he's doing. He's stating the events that will precede that time. So they just get it clear in their heads there's something bigger going on here. Uh, Let's just acknowledge the tension associated with that statement. It's very clear that when you have the specific details that Jesus gives in Matthew 24 and in Matthew 25, there is a huge human temptation. To want to look for a date and to come up with a, when is this going to happen? I know he's being very specific. I want to find this very firm date here. How do I come up with it? And humanity has never lacked for individuals who think they've come up with this specific date, and then they tell the world, only to be humiliated when their date comes and goes. Jesus said, I'm going to have to demolish that thought He demolishes the thought that there's any effort that you can find the date by emphatically stating, you'll see it in verse 36, you can't know. No one knows the date, not even the angels in heaven. The angels can't share the information because they don't know. So that shuts out the whole human race, the whole created angelic race. He says only God knows that date. So if verse 34 is not a timeline indicator, what is it? What is verse 34 about? Well, remember the big idea. The big idea is about this budding of the fig tree. And it means it's not long until summer. It's coming. It's not far away. So the generation, this generation who's alive when the signs occur, they're not going to have long to wait. In other words, this, those who witness the birth pains will live to see the birth A lot of dads in the auditorium this morning, you were in delivery room most likely, you saw babies being born, you saw your wife going through labor, you didn't personally physically participate in feeling the labor pain, although your wife might wish that you did, you didn't feel it, but you witnessed it, you watched it, and you were both there to witness the birth, so those who witness the birth pains will witness the birth. So this phrase, this two-word statement that Jesus makes, this generation, is the generation that's alive during the last days. They will be witnesses to the trauma here on planet Earth. So in other words, the generation that's living when Jesus returns will be witness to everything that He's speaking of in chapter 24 and 25. The the leaves of the fig tree that are budding, that represents the birth pains. There's the signs. There's the indicators the signs of his coming. So in responding to the question, when? When is this going to happen? Jesus is saying it will all occur soon after those signs are witnessed before that generation has a chance to pass away. Uh, Just trust me on this. I've I've done a lot of studying with the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And and I, I invested much energy into it. And I know some of you have done that as well. But if you're new to the Bible or you're new to church, know this. The Bible foretells a period of time on this planet known as the tribulation. Just let me rabbit trail with you for just a second. The tribulation is a very condensed period of time on this planet. When we think of last days, we're thinking of a seven-year period of time. Condensed within that seven-year period of time is something known as the great tribulation. So seven years, the tribulation, three and a half years, half of that time is known as the great tribulation. During that period of time, it's very clear that Scripture shows that that's when those signs are going to occur, that there will be a darkening of the sun, there will be a darkening of the moon, there will be movement in the stars, there will be earthquakes, there will be famines. This generation that Jesus is speaking of here is composed of the population of planet earth that is alive when the rapture of the church takes place. But this generation is those individuals who are not taken up because they do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then if you think that isn't earth-shaking enough, verse 35 comes along and I think it's the most profound statement. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away But my words will not pass away. And I guarantee you, if you grew up in church, you treat that statement as though it's just a throwaway phrase, like, yeah, we know, he said that, I've heard that for years. My words will never pass away. And we don't take it as a reality of a statement of a real event. Heaven and earth will pass away. I want you to see the way that he has stated this because it is unprecedented. It is unparalleled. It's an extraordinary alteration of everything that we have ever known. It is an absolute horror when you hear heaven and earth will pass away. I want you to understand the way that this is being stated because a lady came up to me after the nine, nine o'clock service and she said, I've never really paid attention to that before, that the heaven will pass away. What, what does that actually mean? Well, let me help you with that. I, I committed to her that I would tell you and that I would share it with everybody, both virtually and in person. When you think of the heavens in the Bible, think in terms of three. There's the heaven that the airplanes fly in and the birds fly in. Then there's the heaven that the space shuttle, well, I'm dating myself now, not the space shuttle, the satellites are in, right? Right? And so we have the stars and the planets in the second heaven. The Bible refers to it that way. Then there's the third heaven, the heaven where God dwells, where the mansions are being prepared. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. When it says heaven and earth will pass away, it's talking about the heaven that the planes fly in and that the stars and the planets are in, not the heaven that God dwells in. So when it says heaven and earth will pass away, It's talking about everything that you and I know, everything that we see. God's overruling power is a terror when you hear a statement like that. It's a terror to the faithless. For this reason, from a human point of view, this is all we've ever known. This right here around us, this atmosphere, we can look up and see the planes flying We can look out in the parking lot and see cars. We know what's at home waiting for us. It's all we've ever known. So heaven and earth, in this case, stands for what is permanent, things that we consider completely unchangeable. And check it, through thousands and thousands of years, storms have come against this planet, altered this planet Storms have ravaged, there's been earthquakes, there's been a a, a reshaping of things. The, The Grand Canyon is a good example of that. That has still survived, though. So we would look at our planet and say, yeah, it's faced a lot, it's gone through a lot, but it's still here. So we use the phrase, it's as solid as planet Earth. And Jesus says, not so. Even though in our minds, heaven and earth stands for what's permanent, even though there's been earthquakes, even though there's been erosions and powerful forces again, come against this planet, even though it's still here, there's a day coming when it won't be. And the same is true of the sun and the moon and the stars. Jesus says all these things will pass, and this universe will utterly fail. This might be new news to some of you. Let me show you what the Bible says, 1 Peter, 1 Peter or 2 Peter 3.10 but the day of the lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up or this one revelation 21:1 then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away how shocking Jesus speaks of things that are terrifying to someone who doesn't know what tomorrow holds. How utterly undoing of your world could he be? This is terrifying if you don't know what tomorrow brings. And that explains the fear that has gripped our planet. People living in fear because they're thinking things are spinning out of control. No one's in charge here. This isn't written for fear, though. Because God is working out his purposes, because he has a plan, these things are actually written as an encouragement to his people, not a reason to be afraid. So Jesus follows it up by saying in verse 35, my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will be eradicated, but my words will not pass away. What are his words, his promises to you? I'm going to the other side to build you a mansion that's waiting for you. Where I am, you will be with me also. Or, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You're not alone. I've died to forgive you of your sins. You won't stand before God as judge one day if you're a believer in Jesus. He will say, welcome into the kingdom that's been prepared for you. Those are the commitments, those are the promises, those are the words, capital W, of Jesus when he says, my words shall not pass away, and it also includes everything that he has just said about the last days. So in the same breath, and this is why I find verse 35 to be such a monumental statement, in the same breath that he declares all these things that humanity holds precious, your bank account, your car, your home, the clothing you're wearing right now, everything that we hold precious, gone. It's going to pass away. It won't be here. But my words, my words will never pass away. And in doing that, he forms the consummate contrast by saying this, whatever has been touched by sin must pass away. Whatever has been touched by sin must pass. Maybe you're thinking right now, well, I've been touched by sin. You have. But Jesus redeemed you from that sin. So you stand before the king uncondemned. But whatever has been touched by sin must pass away. But in contrast, God's Word, it's without blemish. It's without any tainting whatsoever. The writer of Psalms chapter 12 says, it's like silver refined seven times in the furnace. It's that pure. God's word can't pass away. We know from what we've seen so far that the return of Jesus will be like a bolt of lightning. It will be that sudden. But Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 36, you can't know the actual day. Look with me on the screen. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. So it's clear, no one knows the time of his coming. It could begin today. It could have begun 60 seconds ago. But he could just as easily kick the can down the road 500 years from now. Do I think that he will? Come back next week. He begins laying out the details in the upcoming parables of more things that we should be expecting, how we're supposed to be watching the signs of the times. Here's what I know from studying God's Word. We can be aware of the movement of things on this globe, global events, we would say. We would be watching the signs of the times. And when you look at Matthew 24 later today, know this. God would not have showed you these things and relayed these things if he didn't want you to be informed. But the purpose of prophecy is not to entertain. It's to motivate. That's why the word manthano was used. It's not just intellectual to say, well, that's really interesting. I'll watch for that one. No, it's to affect your life. It's to learn it, bring it in, and allow it to affect everything that you do, to affect and encourage and to motivate. And it is undeniable, it's, it's with great anticipation, we look for the return of the king. We pray, your kingdom come. You ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Maybe you didn't know what you were praying for. Your kingdom come is praying for the second coming. It's praying for the return of the king. And it's a real event that will happen in real time on a real date, just as did his first coming. Here's what Jesus has done for us this morning. In the big picture, he's reminded us there's a great temptation to go on living as though this life is all there is. But that attitude is not to be the attitude of a Christ follower. We're supposed to have a sense of purpose The Bible says actually redeeming the day, being very intentional about our actions. I think we would all agree that the hope of every believer in Jesus Christ is the return of the King. The Bible says we are supposed to be those who are looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. We wait for the redemption. We look back to the cross, remembering the redemption of our body. But we look forward to his second coming, looking for the redemption of all of what we have ever known to be consumed and then a brand new beginning. So we remember the redemption of our soul and we look forward to the redemption of that new beginning, the redemption of our body. And in that day, the curse will be lifted. Satan will be defeated. Sin and death will be eliminated. All of creation will be liberated. In that day, Jesus will be fully worshiped, and we will see him as he is, and we will be like him, Scripture says. How amazing are these promises of God? So why tell the disciples all this information if it didn't apply to their generation? Well, because like you, God's speaking directly to them And we're told by the writers of the Bible, there's two things going on here. For one is, they were told this information so they would write it down for those of us who live to see the last days. We're told actually it was written down for our instruction as those who have seen the end of the age. That's what Scripture indicates in 1 Corinthians. It was written for our benefit. So that's why I tell the disciples so they would write it down because God wanted you to know. But also, that's the first component. Here's the second component of that. When you learn or when you're reminded of these details, you find that there is a plan. Things aren't spinning wildly out of control. There's a purpose to all that's happening. This is not a world out of control that you live in or a random set of circumstances. And I promise you, God is not surprised by anything going on in your life right now. He's the God that's causing all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you send us out with encouragement, not just that we've gained information. We truly do want the, the Montano component of this Father. We don't just want to gain the information. We want it to affect our living. How we approach tomorrow, how we approach this afternoon, how we have conversations with people who are precious to us. So, God, I ask now that you would send us out with your blessing. Give us the ability to remember some of these things, to to retain it, Father, to the degree that we can actually engage in conversation in a loving way, speaking the truth in love. I pray, Father, that you would also send us out with your encouragement. For those who are in this auditorium, those who are watching virtually, God, that we know you as Savior and Lord, we look forward to a day when we get to be with you. Thank you for reminding us of that as well. So we ask for your blessing on this time, your blessing on each person who's been able to participate in this. Send us out now with your blessing. We ask for this in the majestic name of our soon coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.